Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Tejal Rao, reporter at the New York Times and a columnist for the New York Times Magazine, covering food, culture, and cooking. She won a James Beard Foundation Award for her restaurant criticism at The Village Voice and Bloomberg News in 2013 and 2016. She was born in England and grew up there, Sudan, Kuwait, France, and the United States. She lives in Brooklyn and has an adorable dog named, <laughs> <laughs> named Kimchi. Tejo, welcome to Hungry Society. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and shout out to Kimchi. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, I feel like I say that for every guest. But, but you really mean I it. I really, really mean it this time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean it all the time. Um, but I feel like when I talk to people who love food and food writing, like your name always comes up as like, (laughs) you just made this like really surprised face. Um, I feel like your name always comes up and like the pieces that you've written um, always are mentioned. So it's like a big compliment. That's so nice. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So can we talk a little bit about how you got into food writing? Yeah, I... um well, I, I always, I knew that I wanted to write, and I didn't know for sure that I wanted to write about food. Um, but when I, when I started writing, which is around 2007 and 2008, the only other, um, the only work I'd done was I'd been a cook in kitchens. So the only thing I really, I felt like I knew anything about was food. Um, so that's where I started, and then that's where I got stuck. <laughs> but I really love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so how you cover like so many different things in in your reporting for the New York Times. Like what is your process like? Like how do you find a story that you're really interested in covering? Um, well, the ideas come from lots of different places. I'm so lucky right now that I that I haven't been told I have to focus um, on a particular beat within mm-hmm. food. Um, so if it's a culture story or a sciencey story, I can still pitch that. Or if it's a profile, I can pitch that. Um, but a lot of the ideas come out of, in some cases, they come out of conversations with my boss, with Sam Sifton. In some cases, I have a little like snippet of an idea, but I don't know where it's going to go. So I either email back and forth with my editor, Patrick Farrell, or um, have a conversation with him. Mm. Um, and then sometimes I know exactly what I want to do and I can pitch it, but that's actually, I'm actually not, I'm not very good at pitching. But, um, <laughs> I find it really difficult to be confident about an idea before I've actually executed it, mm. which is sort of the whole point of pitching. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. It is hard to try and 
sell someone on a story mm -hmm. before you've like completely delved into that story. Yeah. And writing is also, it's the way that I think something through. Mm. So if I haven't written it yet, it's really difficult for me to be articulate about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, do you have a favorite piece that you've written so far? Um, I, I know that's hard as like a writer. It's like pick your favorite kid. I have a couple of, well, well, I, I have really warm feelings towards the, the story that I wrote about Kabir Ahmed, the, um, um, the street vendor in New York City mm -hmm. that, that I wrote last year. And I think I, I think I would have liked the story even if nobody else did because it was really <laughs> fun to work on. Mm -hmm. But it's really rare for me to have a big response to something I write. And that was just, it was so rewarding you know, to have people read it and respond emotionally and raise money for him to go on vacation and send nice notes. Like I actually read the comments on that story. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, and most of them are quite nice. <laughs> yeah, so um, for listeners who maybe haven't seen that story, um, it is a kind of a behind the scenes of a, a a food cart operator in New York City and um, and his life and he had never taken a vacation. And um, readers actually after Tejal's story, raised enough money so he could go on vacation. Yeah. I mean, that was... So, I mean, I... I I'm. It's more that I'm just excited about how people responded to it, which mm -hmm. I know that's not a great way to... <laughs> to judge. Judge my own work. <laughs> judge but, the, but that was really special. It was really special. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. I feel like so many of your pieces are uh, come out of your home cooking, too. Mm -hmm. um, like, you did a piece about um, entertaining, like, dinner parties... And and your oyster piece that also I feel like had um, a really warm reaction too. Can you yeah. can you talk a little bit about your oyster piece for people who haven't read it before? Yeah, I well, so with so the I, I wrote a column about um, learning to sort of learning to like oysters, which sounds very cliche. Um, and with the with the column, which I do I do that once a month for the New York Times Magazine, I rotate with a few other writers. Um, I set myself little goals for each column. Like I want to write about oysters, but I don't want to about oysters and love, but I don't want to write something gross and cliche and about corny. oysters and love. Like I, do, I want to find a way for it to not be too corny. Um, or I want to write about lamination, the technique in pastry, but I want to write about it in a way that isn't Eurocentric or, you know, whatever it is, I set myself these little goals because the, mm -hmm. the column's pretty short. It's 800 words and it always has a recipe to go with it. Um, so for the, the oyster recipe was um, a recipe for like a compound butter that you put on oysters and you, and you grill them. And um, yeah, I, wrote, I basically condensed a very long relationship into <laughs> 800 words. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a really lovely, non-corny way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Um, there's even an audio version of it on... Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to name other podcasts on, <laughs> on this podcast, but... They'll bleep it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so speaking of, of goals, um, I always love to ask writers this. What... What is your goal as a food writer? I think 
gosh, that's so hard. I, I don't have, it's not that I don't have goals. I just, I think about each story kind of individually. And I just, sometimes I think, I just want to make like a decent sentence. Like I just want to make a story people will read all the way through um, because the writing is good. Like that's my goal. <laughs> um, and sometimes I think I want to write about this very boring thing and I want to make it interesting enough that people want to read about it. Like, I think my, my goals are really, really tiny. Mm. Um, and I just want people to read <laughs> the stuff that I write. Um, I don't have, like, bigger... I don't have... Um, I, don't, I don't think about, like, my work as, like, a body of work and w that I'm working towards something. And maybe I am subconsciously, but it's not it's not something I'm doing, it's not something I'm aware of. It's just like um, each piece is its own like sort of project. Yeah. Without like a larger sort of like unifying thing. Yeah, I can just picture my boss <coughs> listening to this and like rolling his eyes. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, uh, that's really cool, especially with the way that restaurant culture and dining culture is right now. It is so big at times that maybe it is better to take um, chunks mm -hmm. of it instead of try to have a unifying thing through all of it. I don't know. What do you think? Um, well, I also think, I don't know. Well, I don't know about other writers, but I, I want to sort of follow my curiosity and write about things that interest me. And that can feel like a goal because it hasn't always been, I haven't always been able to do that. Um, does that make sense? No, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so you feel like you have freedom now to do whatever you want. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe more, certainly more than I have had it in other jobs. Yeah. Um, so I tweeted that I wanted to talk to you about your Twitter ad feed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> of <Mother laughs> Like this, this badass picture of uh, Madhu Jaffrey, who is an uh, amazing cookbook author. Um, and actress. Yeah. And yeah. Also, just an amazing actress, too. Um, there's this picture of her that's like, um, how would you describe the picture? She just looks so chic. Right? Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's a screenshot from um, Shakespeare Walla, which is a merchant ivory film from the mid 60s um, about a, a tr traveling troupe of Shakespearean actors in post colonial India. And um, I think it's the last movie that they made in black and white. Uh, but anyway, she's she's pretty incredible in it. It just, and her face is like contemplative and sassy. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good description. Yeah, <laughs> and I just I love that that Avi. Um, but I've also heard you speak very very warmly about Madhu Shafri and and her work. Uh, yeah, I mean it feels so it feels so crazy to say this out loud, but I think we've we've sort of become we've sort of become friends or become friendly. Like we, we will meet up occasionally for a meal. And um, she's someone who, like my mother had her cookbooks when I was growing up and we would watch her films. And she's just, she is a, a real celebrity to me. And it's very, it's really, uh, I, I think it's really cool. And <laughs> I just, like I'm still not over that. And I also haven't told her that she's my avatar. I don't know if she knows or not. <laughs> yeah. Last time I saw her, I almost just, Wanted, wanted to show her so so I could stop feeling awkward about it. Do you feel awkward about it? Well, not with her. I'm I, maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Why? 
I mean, she knows that I'm a fan of hers, mm-hmm. but I think it's a little... It doesn't feel a little too fangirly. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, I'm not, I don't want to change it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's really cool that you um, you grew up with her cookbooks mm-hmm. like in, in your house and now she is a, a friend. Yeah. Can you talk about growing up with those cookbooks and like, you know, I... I think you've also said that like your both of your parents cooked a lot growing yeah, up. Yeah, but yeah, they both cooked a lot growing up. My my mom cooked during the week and my dad cooked on the weekends. And we actually didn't go out to eat very often at restaurants. I I I probably went to McDonald's if like a friend in school had their birthday party there and it was very like exotic to me to go to a restaurant. Um and then we occasionally went to restaurants on a birthday, like a real special occasion, but otherwise we usually ate at home. Um, and they're, they didn't just cook, they did, both of them cooked a little bit of Indian food, maybe once or twice a week we had Indian food, but a lot of their cookbooks were from other places. Mm. Um, we had Thai cookbooks, we had some American cookbooks, um, in- British cookbooks, mm. pretty international. Mm. And I think, <clears throat> you you continue that with do you, what what is your cookbook collection like oh it's like a sprawling <laughs> mess <laughs> i'm try i try to yeah it's 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 a mess um i just i i love cookbooks um and i also judged for a while a cookbook competition so started to hoard even more of them and then anytime i'm working on a story i buy books that are written about that subject so it's it's a bit of a disaster (laughs) (laughs) it's a problem yeah it's a real problem (laughs) do you have like a a go-to like I wouldn't like never ever give this cookbook away or throw it away like some classics that you you have to have um the, well the first cookbook that came to mind is like my I have this Mickey Mouse cookbook from when I was a kid <laughs> and I would never cook from it it's terrible but yeah what I would, I would Mouse grab recipes. it in a fire or two. <coughs> oh, they're terrible it's like um you open a muffin and you put a slice of cheese in it and then you put it <laughs> on it, yeah and they have and they but the, but they're all illustrated with with uh, like Disney characters oh yeah <laughs> I love that that's what popped into your head first <laughs> as, like, the cookbook you would save. Uh, the cookbook that you wouldn't make anything out of. Yeah, I wouldn't make a thing. It's very aspirational. Right. <laughs> Are there other cookbooks that, like, maybe you've learned, like, uh, techniques from or I mean, go-to recipes? Oh, there's so many. The book that I reference the most is maybe um, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking. Mm-hmm. I, I go to a lot for, like, historical context or for understanding uh, the science behind a certain pr- cooking process. Um, I really, oh my gosh, I, I, there there would be so many. There's for, for recipes, there would be so many. Mm-hmm. Is that also one that you grab in a fire? The, yeah, but I'd probably cooking? be able to get another cup. That's of it, true. So that's true. So just the gotta Mickey think Mouse strategically. One. <laughs> <laughs> so kimchi and the, the Mickey Mouse. Yeah, exactly. Mouse cookbook. That is, there you go. What else do you need? (laughs) All right, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with Tejal Ra.
100 Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. All right, so we're back with more Hungry Society with Tejal. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, dining culture as you see it right now? I always love to ask uh, writers that question because I think it's our job to kind of witness it mm-hmm. and talk about it. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, I think that if you're reading newspapers and magazines and websites, you have a certain sense you have a sense that dining culture is almost like a monolith and it's not it, like there's so much more going on that maybe we're not covering or we're not doing a great job covering mm-hmm. um, <laughs> what what would you like to see covered more i think um well restaurant culture outside of new york city restaurant culture outside of the restaurants that are kind of publicized or that have that are hyped by by you know um, publicists in yeah. general like I, I think there's there's just a lot of a lot of culture that's really important to people in their daily lives that doesn't get a lot of attention mm-hmm. definitely especially in I think it's in a city like New York it it to me it's always like who gets talked about and who doesn't yeah. is so crazy to me because there's literally like restaurants on top of restaurants like everywhere and there's so much to explore and discuss mm-hmm. and I, I agree that it feels like we kind of it's very like monolithic um, you mentioned that you didn't go out to eat very much when you yeah, were growing as a kid, up, yeah. yeah, except for trips to McDonald's. Yeah, if I if I was lucky, if a friend had a birthday party there. <laughs> what was um? Because your family traveled quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What What was your was the the relationship the same like in different places, or did you go out to eat more and when you moved somewhere else? When we when we traveled, we definitely ate a lot, and we thought of you know eating out or or we'd shop at the grocery stores that were in, you know, in that place, like that was part of, of traveling, Mm -hmm. um, was the food. But when we were, when we were at home, uh, we didn't really go to restaurants except for special occasions Mm -hmm. until everything kind of changed when we moved to the U S um, like when I was about 13, because it's a lot more affordable to go out to eat here. There are a lot more options that aren't necessarily very expensive. Mm Um, compared to like rural France, um, so <laughs> right. so we did start going out to restaurants a bit more. Mm-hmm. And what were what kind of restaurants were you going to? 
Um, so not still not that often, but like chain restaurants in Atlanta. Like, um, I mean, I very vividly remember my first experience at Applebee's um, at Houston's where I would eat the veggie burger because I was vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> um, places like that. Uh, I can't imagine, like, Applebee's must have been, like, a, a like amusement park <laughs> yeah. compared to, like, restaurants in, like, rural France. Yeah, I mean, I really, lo- I loved, I loved that, though. I, I, and also, so when we, when we lived in France, the first, um, the first restaurant that really excited me, I feel like I'm talking about Disney too much, but the no. first restaurant <laughs> that really excited me it, um, was called Annette's Diner, and it was inside Euro Disney. Um, I was eight or nine years old, and it was one of those restaurants where all of the waitresses were on roller skates um, and wore, like, pink leggings, and they seemed very cool to me. And, I mean, everything about the restaurant was designed to please, like, a nine-year-old kid, mm-hmm. and so it worked, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Clearly it I worked. loved it. And that also, that's also the first place where I um, tasted Oreos and a bunch of other American ingredients. Oh, wow. So the menu so was... was really influential. Was American? Yeah. That in, in Euro Disney? Yeah, it was, a, it was like a 50s American-themed <laughs> diner, almost like a, like Johnny Rockets or something like that. Oh, wow. That sounds incredibly dangerous <laughs> to be on roller skates in a restaurant environment. I know. But, I mean, obviously, we're talking about it now. Yeah, it's, it's still open. <laughs> no, <laughs> are it they is. still on roller skates? I think so. Wow, that's a lawsuit in Dana. <laughs> but, um, wow, that... <laughs> Again, a formative Disney experience. Yeah. That's probably when I got the book. Right. <laughs> uh, so your uh, dining habits now, um, what do you... Hmm, I'm trying to think of the, the right way to, to ask you about. Like, when you go out to eat now, mm-hmm. like what, what excites you? Like what like thrills you when you go out? Um, well, food that's not identical to <laughs> another restaurant's food is always exciting. Uh, re- like really warm hospitality, mm-hmm. um, like delicious food. I I I am. Uh, I mean, I know I've worked as a critic before, but I want to have a really good time when I go out to eat. Like I'm looking to enjoy something delicious, mm-hmm. and you know. Do you think? Uh, Criticism is like inherently like looking for uh, a negative experience, or do you think that's the people the impression people have of it? I I think I don't think that that's the that's what criticism is, but I do think that's the impression that some people have mm-hmm. um, that a restaurant critic is going out and just sort of like keeping a list of terrible things or microaggressions or you know. Um, well, well, I'm not. Are there other misconceptions? Do you think? we all have about criticism <laughs> and it's like function um ooh yeah well one of so before before I'd ever before I had, my first job as a restaurant critic was at the Village Voice and before I had that job um I noticed how people are really obsessed with the idea of anonymity and um love sort of that mythology of like Ruth Reichel dressing up in, yeah. in wigs or pretending to be an old man or um and what I found when I started was that I didn't have to work at any kind of disguise because um 
like as a youngish brown woman in restaurants, I was already invisible. kind of invisible. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a really interesting, like I, I think we don't, we don't think a lot, like anonymity, it's different now, I think it's different. Uh, but for me, I mean, um, but it doesn't work the same way for everyone. Like that kind right. of invisibility doesn't work the same way for everyone. Right. And it can also be really vicious and, and painful <laughs> to be ignored. Yes. <laughs> or to be, um, to have assumptions made about you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> when you enter a dining space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, recently, this just as an aside, recently I was at a pretty popular Brooklyn bar and a woman grabbed my arm and asked me for a drink. <laughs> and I was like with a group of friends on the other side of the bar in heels and a dress. Oh and my God. So in like some ways it... That's happened to me too. It's happened like I've been um, working, you know, like at working on a review and, and at a restaurant and someone has asked, someone has handed me their coat or, oh or um, asked me to show them where the bathroom is or yeah, yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. It, so in some ways like being invisible um, and in other ways being being seen but being seen as someone whose job it is to like take it like catered I don't know how to yeah how to phrase that but it's yeah it's complicated it's very complicated <laughs> um, but some people think of it as, as very glamorous mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah the I feel like Ruth Rachel you know showing the the costumes and the wigs it just kind of added like a layer of like ooh like this um it made it kind of cool like it yeah it was like you know being a spy of some sort mm -hmm. um instead of yeah I I had a, a teacher that once said that restaurant criticism is essentially essentially just like service journalism like you you are doing a service for your readers and you're letting them know where to spend their money and where not to I think it's more than that, though. I mean, if it's any good, it's more than that, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, what what are the other functions? I mean, I don't want to say what I think it should be, but if I'm if I'm reading criticism, I I'm not always reading it because I want to know whether or not I should go to that restaurant. That's just a that's the you should be able to get that out of a review, obviously, but I think you want to read a really good piece of writing. Um, you want someone who's connecting all these dots for you. Mm -hmm. Not not just um, their experience, but also... Hmm. Like what's happening in, in the restaurant industry, what's mm -hmm. happening in the larger culture. Mm -hmm. There are all these interesting connections to make in criticism yeah. and I think like a really good review usually does more than just tell you <laughs> mm -hmm. where to, you you get you learn something right or you think or if you don't maybe you don't learn anything but you get some some you think about something mm -hmm. I think the, the best criticism also you feel like the person writing it is knowledgeable about not just what's going on in the industry but mm -hmm. in that um the restaurant in the context of the place that it's in yes yeah and the chef and uh, the cuisine or the style of cooking or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but it's not like in a hermetically sealed jar. It's <laughs> in conversation with other stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. it, yeah, I guess there is. there are many more layers. Maybe I should go back to that teacher. Be like, <laughs> hey, actually, 
there's other things going on in restaurant. Was criticism. that a crit- was that a criti- criticism specific class? It was a food writing specific class mm-hmm. um, at Harvard Extension School. Oh wow! <clears throat> and yeah, I remember. I'll, I, I remember the teacher saying that. Like, but I guess it's true because if if it is just about service journalism, then it would be like a Yelp review, pretty much. It would be like just this was good, this was bad. Um, I like this. I didn't like that. Yeah. Hmm. But other pieces. I remember that teacher also saying that food writing in general is not just about food. Mm-hmm. You're writing about something interesting, and food is a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And lately, I've been thinking about how food is not the. It's the entry point for a piece of writing, but there is usually a bigger story around it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think your pieces touch on, like, I'm thinking in particular about the, the restaurant in Maine. Oh, yeah, The Lost yeah. Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, can you explain a little bit about The Lost Kitchen? Yeah, The Lost Kitchen is um, it's run, run by a woman called Erin French in, in a town called Freedom, Maine. <laughs> Um, it's just, it, it's kind of too perfect. Um, she, she's r- really interesting. Um, she's kind of a self-taught cook who runs a restaurant where the entire staff, except for the dishwasher, um, they're all women. And it's a, it's a tiny restaurant that books up within a few days, and it's only open, I don't remember the exact number of months, but it's basically only open when it's not winter in Maine. Right. Um, and she's done some really interesting things at the restaurant. Like she's made it fairer. The, 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 um, the way at the front of the house and back of the house are paid is more equal than in a lot of restaurants. Um, the out, she she does all these things to sort of, um, make the rest. I feel like I'm not doing a very good job at explaining this. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> I you really are. did write a whole story about it. <laughs> I promise. Um, well, no, I think, but the the bigger story is, um, like, fairness in restaurants and yeah. kitchens and also freedom, <laughs> not just a town in Maine, mm-hmm. but also what um, the it's, chef is going for. It seems like people can figure out ways to do this in very small businesses like this very small restaurant that has 30 seats or something but for some reason bigger groups can't seem to figure it you know if you if you want to grow if you want to be gigantic it's I don't know I don't know who's figured it out Mm. in a bigger way yeah um not not yet anyway um, so we are actually nearing the end of the show. Oh no! <laughs> so I ask um, every every guest this, but um, can you talk about a bad dining experience you've had? You don't have to name the restaurant, but you can if you want to. I I really want I want to th- I want to tell you like a hilarious story about some mishap, but I don't really I don't really have that. But I can tell you about things that are bad in okay. general. <laughs> Um, there's still restaurants where they insist on speaking to people in like a gendered way and then they misgender people like they, they miss you and ma'am you and mister you mm-hmm. um, and I've had experiences with friends where you know someone has been misgendered that way and it's that that is bad <laughs> yeah that's um, bad that's bad 
I often have not been handed the check, even when I'm the person paying, or dishes that are dishes that someone reads as being more masculine or feminine are given to the wrong person, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Mm. But I don't have a story of like a hilarious story about like a <laughs> someone fell onto a table. Yeah, exactly. Smashed a glass of wine. And they spilled their wine down my white silk blouse and <laughs> and I never went back. When the clown came through the dining room <laughs> and yeah, I, I never went there again. <laughs> Um, so my last question for you is if you could have your last meal in a restaurant, mm. where would it be? And who is invited? Is it okay if it's not at a restaurant? Yeah, no, that's totally fine. So I think I would, because I think if it was my last meal, I'd kind of want to be a bit more involved. Like I'd want to cook, I'd want to cut things up and wash things and I'd want to do dishes and I'd want to stretch the You'd meal out as dishes? long as possible. Yeah, with, not by myself. Okay. Not like alone in the dark, <laughs> weeping. <laughs> right. I was like, that's a very uh, dramatic way to go. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, it's not fun doing dishes in my apartment, but it's really fun doing dishes with my family. Like after Thanksgiving dinner and everyone's doing the dishes all together. Mm. And, like, one of my uncles has put Santana on really loud and everyone's <laughs> dancing. <laughs> you know, that kind of doing the dishes scenario is fun. Well, what are you, um, where, where's the space that you're eating? I think it's, it has to be my grandma's house. It's very cliche. It has to be my grandma's house in Nairobi. Um, and I would want her to make something that takes a really long time, you know? <laughs> Um, she makes this dish called ubariyu that's a, a layered, um, it's layered in a big metal pot and then it's cooked on charcoal outside. Um, lamb chops, little tiny stuffed eggplant and potatoes. Um, and then she makes a pastry and she seals the pot and cooks it. Oh, wow. It's delicious. Oh, like she puts the pastry around the edge. Yeah, of exactly. The, I've seen that before. A friend made um, like super traditional like Alsatian like stew with like pig's feet and sausages and potatoes and all that and sealed the was it a Beckoff? Y- yes it was um it was uh it was really really good that sounds delicious and yeah she put a pastry around the outside to catch like the steam and yeah. stuff I'd never seen that before yeah that's exactly what she does <laughs> so who's invited to your last meal um, just some close family and friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, are we talking like 10 people, 20 people? I think no more than 10 people. No more. <laughs> Guest list. You, you should have a bouncer. <laughs> you should like cut it off at 10. I'd also want some dogs there too. Multiple dogs? Yeah. Kimchi, obviously. <laughs> what other dogs do you know or just random it's just, dogs? Just, you know, some nice friend- <laughs> friendly neighborhood dogs. <laughs> Okay, you are the first guest to mention, like, uh, animals that you'd like to really? be. Really? Yes. People, um, no one's mentioned animals yet, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> what are people drinking? Um, probably with this dip, probably beer. Any specific kind or just any beer? I think, I think for my last meal, I wouldn't overthink it. Mm-hmm. So, Bud, Bud Light, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> in Nairobi, it'd probably be Tusker in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet that's better than Bud Light. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was so fun to talk to you about your work. Um, and thank you so much for listening to A Hungry Society. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.